Healthcare Leadership, Challenges and Opportunities in a Post-Affordable Care Act World. Moderator, Dean Dory Fontaine, School of Nursing. Speakers, Dr. Daniel McCarter, Associate Professor, School of Medicine. Ms. Pam Sutton-Wallace, Chief Executive Officer, UVA Medical Center. Associate Dean Kenneth White, Strategic Partnerships and Innovation at the School of Nursing, Professor, School of Nursing. you're all here and hopefully you brought some nice weather eventually for reunion weekend so welcome back how many of you are in healthcare? i've met a couple of you that are yeah see this is really great well we're glad you're all here i'm sure you're going to have something to say to us during the um time that we're going to have for question and answer but i want to um invite you to look at who are our wonderful panelists today and I'm going to just advance the slides after I told everybody else how to do it. Um, it would be nice if I could do it. Then. Oh, guess that went a few too many ahead. There we go. Okay, this is our panelists. I've invited three of my most favorite people at the University of Virginia in our health system, and I'm going to introduce each one, and then um, we're going to have Pam Sutton-Wallace go ahead and speak first. So Pam Sutton-Wallace, she's the newest. Um, person here. She's our CEO for um, <clears throat> 11 months, and she's going to make it to a year, and I hope she stays forever, because she is incredible. <laughs> she's had a couple of decade career at Duke. We often don't talk about Duke in great lights here at UVA, but she was a fabulous leader there to the point that her nursing colleagues said that she really should be an honorary nurse. So we were very lucky to have her. She has an MPH from Yale, and she brings lots of experience, and we're already seeing how her impact is changing the way we take care of patients and families here. So Pam is going to go first. Next, we're going to hear from um, Dr. Dan McCarter. Dan is a wonderful physician colleague in family medicine. He is, I want to say, quadruple who, is that right? So several degrees from uh, the University of Virginia, including going here for medical school. He runs a practice. He's very focused on rural health care, and he runs a practice in Stony Creek, which is, I guess, about 20 miles, would you say? Yeah, 30. Yeah. All right, 30, all right, 30 miles from here. Um, and he has also been tasked with directing Well Virginia, our new accountable care organization, which in the few short months to year that it's been running already has some good outcomes. So Dan is going to talk to us about, about that. Pam is actually going to talk to us about the overall institutional response. And then finally, Ken White, I um, stole him away from a wonderful university not too far away from here. He is a healthcare leader. He had been an administrator of actually Catholic hospitals for over 13 years, and then he became a nurse very wise, and uh, he is a nurse practitioner. I've hired him to come and help us with making partnerships and leading innovation. He brought the program in healthcare administration at VCU up to the number four program in the country. So that's what Ken does. He also wrote three books last year, et cetera, et cetera. But we can't talk more about these people. They're wonderful. But what I'd like to do is to have each of them talk to us for about 15 minutes about you know these challenges with the Affordable Care Act. Um, and I'm going to invite uh, the two gentlemen to come sit in the audience with me and bring Pam up to talk about the institutional response. Because we want to be able to see your slides, Pam. <laughs> and I do too. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So it's a little awkward because I'll try to get my groove here, how to push slides and control the uh, slides here. Um, but I also like to roam. I'm a talker and I like to move around. So indulge me as I kind of flip through size slides. But welcome back. I feel like I should say thank you for welcoming me to the UVA family. It has been absolutely a delightful year. Um, I can't think of a better place to be. A lot of people ask me what drew you away from a 20-year career at Duke. And what drew me away was the enthusiasm to bring a level of excellence, and I shouldn't say bring a level, but to really heighten the level of excellence here at UVA and really find an opportunity for growth and development and really coaching teams and moving the um, medical center in particular um, to new directions and new heights. So I'm excited about that. Um, there's a, this is a, a really changing dynamic. So unfortunately, these slides were made over the last couple of weeks. I assure you, there's something up here that has changed already. Uh, I was in Richmond yesterday, and it's an absolutely moving target around where is healthcare going. Um, I've never seen such a time of dynamic transitions and, and a, quite honestly, confusion. And so for the first time, I think health, healthcare executives feel like they're flying a little bit in the dark about where we're going in terms of reimbursement models, care delivery models. Um, the good news about that, though, is it's a real opportunity for innovation. And I'd like to speak a little bit about kind of one where um, new directions are, at least as recently as you know, the last six months, uh, where the federal government is directing us, um, also get in a better sense of how UVA is planning to adopt to that. Um, so I have a lot of slides. I only have 15 minutes, and Madam Moderator is going to keep me on point, but I'll, I'll flip quickly, and we certainly will have opportunity for questions and answers. So most of you are in healthcare. Um, I sh I'm sure you understand the Institute of Health Improvement um, which was led by Don Berwick at its height, um, kind of uh, came up with this notion of the triple aim. And really, healthcare delivery systems are going to have to address this very serious issue of value in healthcare. Um, I'm sure you all know the statistics that per capita we spend like the third highest amount on healthcare, but are at the 37th percentile in terms of performance on health statistics. So we're spending a lot of money and not a lot to show for it. And as a result, clinical care delivery as well as financing of healthcare have to change in order to meet what um, I think Dr. Burwick outlined here very well and still really resonates with those of us who provide care. One, improving the health of the population. That seems obvious, um, but most of us really think about healthcare in terms of caring for an individual patient. For the first time, we're talking about caring for a whole population. And I'm an MPH person, so I'm an epidemiologist, so I get this. Um, but I think as clinical caregivers, you're used to thinking about your patient who's in front of you and their specific needs versus what's the need of a whole community of people. Also, the enhance the um, patient experience. Um, and that doesn't just include satisfaction, though certainly that's up there, but what does that mean in terms of access to care? There are an extraordinary number of people who still do not have access to basic health care. Um, how do we um, improve reliability and care coordination? And then finally, to reduce health care per capita costs. And I'll try not to focus so much on that. Everybody thinks the healthcare person is the bean counter. I promise I am not the bean counter. <laughs> I care about the population. So what's on the horizon? Kind of what's the big hot topics? And most of you know, if you're in healthcare, about um, over the last, I would say, seven years, there's been a lot around pay for performance. And that's just a global terminology that's used to um, say, how do you begin incenting healthcare providers to be paid for quality? versus being paid for the more you do, the more you get. Because honestly, right now, that's how we get paid. The more procedures I do on you, the more visits you have, the more money I make in the organization. Um, and now we're trying to transition 
um, and what I would say, what has been slowly to, we get reimbursed based on, did we keep you healthy? Did we keep you not getting an infection when you came into the hospital? Did you get readmitted or not? And those are more called value-based programs, and they really were kicked off by Medicare. Um, but we're seeing a lot of third-party payers trying to create the same kind of models, where basically there's a portion of our income either at risk or withheld if we don't meet specific quality measures. And to be sure, the list is long. So I have a department of 35 people who do nothing but measure, uh, who get data out of our EMR, electronic medical record, health record, which is extraordinary, right? So now we have to invest in a whole infrastructure of people who just collect data. Um, and right now we collect over 500 different measures of quality. Um, now, unfortunately, sometimes there's that if Medicare defines it, it's one way. Another entity can define it as another way. So you would think an infection is an infection. You would even think a death is a death. Believe it or not, it is not true. One organization can define a death as X, and another organization can define a death as Y. And as a result, um, we've got all these people kind of tracking. Um, but it is an attempt to get us to be incented to improve quality. What is also happening in parallel is a transition to population health. And again, population health is being used everywhere. And when someone tells you, oh, we're embarking on population health, you better ask them, exactly what do you mean? Because at times, they mean accountable care organizations, which were really commissioned in the Affordable Care Act, were basically um, kind of a demonstration model to try to see if we could deliver care for a whole population and really understand the care needs of a community and be motivated to really coordinate care for that community, not just their health care needs, but their mental health care needs, a whole host of issues. And Dr. McCarter will speak in great detail. So here at UVA, we lead um, an accountable care, or, or, yeah, accountable care organization, and he'll give us a lot of details around that. Um, but people also use the term to mean bundle payments. And so more insurance companies, Medicare, are embarking on how do we get paid instead of for every procedure or every activity I do for you, I'm charging you with taking care of this patient, delivering cancer care. So how do I reimburse you now for that whole episode of cancer care versus just the more you do, the more you get? But instead, look at the whole experience of the cancer experience and reimburse you one rate for that entire episode. So I'm sure you can begin thinking, well, wait a minute, when's the episode start? What about somebody who has like a third remission-based cancer or um, versus an initial diagnosis of cancer? Isn't that more expensive? What about somebody who's going to have a stem cell um, versus just basic, I, I shouldn't call it basic, but radiation oncology? So the whole... Um, it begins to beg a lot of questions, and so there are lots of projects trying to get at how does that look. Um, and so all of those are kind of in a bundle called population health. Most recently, in January 2015, Secretary Burwell, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services um, in the federal government, for the first time made a pretty big proclamation about where CMS, and CMS is the center that governs Medicare and Medicaid, and quite often they set this tone and stage for what other healthcare payers will do. Um, governmental payers and non-governmental payers. And so they made in that statement, which was a very brief statement, not a lot of details, but for the first time they gave us very specifics around wanting to tie incentives to these new models of payment, which I just explained as population health type of payments. Two, they were going to really create incentives that made, forced providers in particular to be more um, innovative in their delivery of care that would promote integration, coordination, and attention to population health. Again, this is like mom and apple pie, right? How do you contest that? 
patients? And three, how do you harness the power of information? And I'll talk a lot more about that. So in that same letter, and this is what was really um, new for CMS. Rarely do they come out with targets like this. But for the first time, Medicare said, we're going to put some goals and targets for when we want you to get there. So by fiscal 20, or by 2018, let's use the second column, uh, which is only three years from now, by the way, or I would say two and a half, we want you to have, um, we want to have 90% of our reimbursement tied to um, these quality measures. So right now we're about at 50% of our reimbursement is tied to those pay-for-performance models that I talked about. Value-based purchasing, readmissions, um, improving quality. They want 90%. While that doesn't sound like a lot, as an example, uh, UVA this year had $2.7 million in penalties withheld um, from our payment for Medicare for not meeting certain quality targets, which not, honestly is right kind of in the middle of the pack where the rest of health systems are in the United States. Um, that's $2.7 million. They want to move much more quickly to that kind of model with more at risk for the provider. Uh, secondly, they stated in that um, in that kind of, it wasn't a regulation, it was a guideline, that they want um, more, almost 50% by year end of our payment models to be in that new payment methodology. So not only would we go from pay for performance, but now we would do these more innovative, hard to define kind of payment methodology, and 50%. So as an institution where 70%, almost 70% of our reimbursement is associated with Medicare, that has a huge impact, and we have no idea what this is gonna do. Um, to our reimbursement levels. So not only our reimbursement levels, but how does this change how care is delivered? So I want to talk through with you some of the things that we're thinking are going to be implications of this, and it's pretty significant. Um, they also stated in that statement that uh, Medicare was going to start bringing together not only governmental payers, Medicaid and Medicare, but also having coordination sessions with private insurers and employers. Well, why does that matter? because it now means we're likely to be, move much more quickly as an industry this direction. Usually Medicare does the, what they do and it takes probably, I would say, almost a generation for everybody else to catch up or to do something different. By having this common kind of platform, it'll, everybody's gonna move more quickly, faster. Um, but they also wanna track the outcomes in Healthy People 2020. And so that's actually been pretty successful at the federal level of tracking of healthcare outcomes from big populations. Um, of, of citizenry, looking to see if we're really moving the needle on healthcare outcomes. And I think that's actually a good thing. Ooh, sorry. So what does this mean in terms of, uh, you'll hear all of this being termed as moving to value-based care. So moving from, you'll probably, the buzzwords in the media are moving from volume to value. Moving from getting paid for every little thing you do to really delivering on healthcare and being able to keep people healthy, which is obviously a good thing. But what does that mean to a healthcare delivery system like UVA? We have to completely change the way we think and manage in our organization. One, thinking about caring for communities versus just taking care of disease. And we all know, individually, we're complicated people, right? How many of us are exercising every day? Okay, this group is probably All right, I see 20% of you exercise. How many of you are eating what you that you're following your pyramid. All right, that's, but not all of us, right? How many of us don't drink, don't smoke, and are free of stress? <laughs> gotcha. I want to live with you. <laughs> Exercising, eating well, and stress-free. <laughs> um, and a blunt. 
N of one, right? But the bottom line is we're complex beings. Our health care isn't the only thing that informs our health condition. And so that's a big deal because now we're going to be responsible for the health of our population um, and caring for a community. And I'll talk about it a little more. Um, it's also promoting collaboration, collaboration versus competition, which I think is a good thing. So you'll see one of the things that UVA we're doing is reaching out with our strategic partners. There's not enough money in the world to acquire every competing hospital and say, you are now in our circle of friends and we will direct care. Instead, we have to think about how do I collaborate with Bon Secours in Northern Virginia so that I keep health care that can be kept at home at home and instead, UVA is really becoming the tertiary quaternary center where we're doing things like transplants, LVADs, um, advanced care, advanced liver disease. Those are things that we should be experts in. We have the faculty who are the experts in those fields. Um, quite honestly, you probably don't need to be doing some basic um, surgical interventions that can be done locally or at home where the patient is. So that's going to force a level of collaboration. Um, integrated networks, just what I described a little bit before. Really coordinating care better um, between the ambulatory environment, so your clinic. Honestly, I didn't say before ambulatory, your home care. Um, you'll see we're doing a lot around e-medicine, e-healthcare, e-visits through telemedicine. Your ambulatory care, your acute care, and your post-care. How do we all talk to each other? Now, that's what the electronic medical record was supposed to do, right? Everything's documented in one place, therefore you know everything about your patient no matter what environment. And I haven't quite made it to where it's supposed to be. But let me, let me tell you, at least at Duke, I didn't install um, Epic here, but at Duke, um, the electronic medical record was a $300 million investment. And so when you're talking about that kind of money, you've got to start yielding some results of being able to coordinate care across the continuum. And the EMR is really um, a mechanism to do that. Um, but right now, we often find that what happens in acute care doesn't necessarily get translated to what happens in your clinic visit. How many of you have been frustrated by you had an intervention, for significant intervention, and your doctor, who's your primary care physician, has no idea what happened? Um, or even worse, you have a specialist, a cardiologist, who didn't even know you were in the hospital um, and that you had an event. Um, and those are big issues that we have to kind of, in order to really care for a population, you have to understand the care across the continuum. And bridging primary care and specialty care. Again, that's been a big topic in the past. I am really behind, so I'm going to try to catch up. I have five minutes, she says. Okay. Um, optimizing our technology. And while we, Dr. Karen Rubin, I'm sure most of, many of you know her. She is the queen of telemedicine, has really set national standards around telemedicine. But how do we begin using our electronic medical record more efficiently? Not only using the medical record itself, but how do we use the data? We get Millions of data points that are coming as a result of this electronic medical record get stored in our big warehouse. The challenge is how do you get that data out to tell you information about your patient population? And I'm sure Dan will give us a little bit of insight of what, how rich that data can um, describe our population and what they're using um, and how they seek care. And that's really important for thinking about um, the longitudinal care of a patient. We have to, and I alluded to this before, for the first time, we really have to seriously think about the social determinants of health. As I described to you, um, there are many other things outside of clinical care delivery that impact your health care, everything ranging from your mental health needs, your access to food and nutrition, um, your employment status, uh, your transportation needs, um, a whole host of items. Seems like rocket science, but left hand and right hand don't necessarily talk. And so how do we partner with our social service systems, how do we partner with you as the patient to be engaged to really give serious consideration about these needs? 
Um, I talked about mental health, patient engagement and accountability. Um, how do we care for you as a whole patient? Most of you want to be well informed. How do we keep your loved ones well informed? Many of us have partners or spouses who have to help us um, keep on track, especially after an acute care event. And then finally, how do we improve the patient experience um, that isn't just about um, your patient, your satisfaction in the moment, but is also about how do you advocate for yourself? How do you navigate the complexity of a healthcare system? So the general rule of thumb lately is 5% of our patients are using anywhere from 50 to 70% of the healthcare services. That's a very few people using a lot of the resources, and oftentimes it's because of some of these issues. Uh, we have the issue of cultural competence. So how do we relate with one another? How do you take into account somebody's specific religious, um, spiritual needs, and how does that impact care? And really health literacy. There's some really interesting science on even the most educated folks and most educated patients and consumers not understanding how they're supposed to take their medications, how they're supposed to um, take care of their basic health care needs. So some of the biggest challenges as a CEO is connecting the dots of all of this. And so this presentation has been fun to put together because I had to connect the dots for myself. It is swirling. But how do you take, you know, explain all this to a frontline caregiver? who now has to think about more than just the care I'm delivering in the moment. Um, and that's a lot of, um, uh, that's a big cultural transformation. Um, we're trying to align some of our organizational goals and eventually our metrics to push us quicker into this direction. But we, I, I said it's like riding a bike on a treadmill. You have to keep doing what you're doing the way you're doing it today because that's how you get compensated today. But yet you have to be preparing yourselves for moving forward to this really very different model. Uh, what is UVA doing? We're doing a lot of work. How many people have heard Be Safe or read anything about it in your alumni materials? This is a big issue, or a big, um, I hate calling it an initiative because that sounds such flavor of the month. This is the way we are now doing business. Be Safe is really our performance improvement. Um, it's a way to reduce waste. It's nothing rocket science. It's what's happening in the industry. Um, it's really taking lean principles of root cause, real-time problem solving at the front line to minimize waste in our system and to begin thinking about some of these really complex issues. And it's quite a joy to be here under the leadership of Dr. Shannon, who really brought this vision with him. Um, he joined us about two years ago in the health system. And it's really a way to problem solve. And it's pushing problems or problem solving to the front line. And what's exciting is it's allowing our physicians, our nurses, our PTs, our pharmacies, all of our caregivers to solve problems at the front line, as opposed to leadership coming in, assuming we know what to do, and telling everybody what to do. Or to wait until big committee structures. Uh, so how many people have a quality committee or a safety committee that everything is funneling up to, but nothing trickles down? Instead, it's really letting the front line staff problem solve. And our job as leaders is to remove the barriers. And so it's creating an extraordinary amount of empowerment across our staff, um, you can see the real principles are creating alignment so that everybody knows what the focus is, um, improving using scientific methods, getting people to learn the lean principles, how to use like spaghetti graphs, how to use value stream maps, all the things that have been in other industries for years, applying that to healthcare, with the goal of seeking perfection. And we know we're not perfect, but we absolutely need to seek perfection. Dr. Shannon's favorite line is, how many of us come to a hospital and want an infection? Raise your hand. <laughs> All right. 
Nobody wants an infection, so how do we seek perfection in that? But I think most important is leading with humility and really respecting the power and knowledge of our frontline staff. I am blown away by the level of thought and intelligence and just constant reinforced thinking of our workforce. We have some of the most impressive team members I've ever met. And they really know how to solve their problems. Our job as leaders is to get out of their way and give them what they need to um, remove some of the barriers. So that's been really joyful. I'll skip over this slide and talk to um, most of us. slide I really um, we've had a lot of great success over the last 18 months this is just a little bit of the progress that we've made um, I'll show you some great data around um, engagement employee engagement and most of you know if your employees if your team members are not engaged everything else fails it's the it's the number one thing if your staff and your faculty aren't aligned aren't feeling supported and valued all this other work is impossible to do um, again I'll skip over that this is a a comparative slide of since we've instituted some of this be safe work, which again doesn't get us completely to that ideal vision of value-based care, but really sets a framework for how do we reduce waste in our system and help people see bridges across their silos. And uh, we conducted a culture of safety survey, which most institutions do. Uh, we did the light blue line, Carolina blue line, by the way, um, <laughs> is our 2012 <laughs> results. And the dark blue cavalier blue, I won't say blue devil blue anymore, line is the um, 2014 results on one of our early adopting units around BC. And you can see in every area except for one, there's been remarkable, this is huge improvement in less than a year, around the staff feeling like there's a culture that supports them around teamwork, around continuous improvement, um, respect of management, openness of communication. The only area where we didn't see improvements was around staffing. So despite staffing concerns, there was still this level of improvement. But what we've had to do in the process of all this is shore up our staffing to make sure that people had time. Um, I am not going to go through all the challenges. You can probably surmise based on conversations. I'll try to pull out any I think are important that I haven't mentioned. We talked about IT and having the infrastructure, um, making sure our staff have time to do this advanced level work, um, making sure our physicians are incented um, appropriately to participate, reallocation of resources as needed. Uh, I do want to highlight this work is really challenging to do with the still in place regulatory environment that we have, right? So, Somebody asked me yesterday in Richmond, what can, what, if you had one word for legislators, what would it be? I really wanted to find Carson Bates, I don't know. But what I said is, encourage us to collaborate and innovate versus telling us every dot and I that we need to tick off and have people tell us, make this checkbox, do this checkbox, be in compliance. Instead, encourage us to think, because guess what? If you encourage us to think and put the money there, we will. We'll come up with the great ideas. But right now, we still have strong privacy laws, which I'm fully in support of, don't get me wrong. But those privacy laws keep us from communicating um, across our spectrum of healthcare. Um, there are Stark laws, and basically Stark says that hospitals and physicians have to be very careful about how they exchange money with one another. That's a big deal, because I can't pay physicians to do certain things, um, and that has an impact. Antitrust laws, you can only get so big, and the big fear is that um, Prices get out of control. I would actually argue in a healthcare environment, very different price. It's not like a normal capitalistic industry. Um, price controls actually are better when you have larger systems. Um, and then leveraging technology, um, I think I already spoke 
Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here with you today. Um, you know, uh, it's good to be back around with a group of people that understands that we're on the grounds and not the campus. And don't find it funny when we talk about first years instead of freshmen. And went through final exercises instead of graduation. Although, um, when we said that you would never, you could take your degree but never leave the university, most people didn't take it as literally as I did. Um, <laughs> so. Anyway, how do I do this? Okay, this is just showing sort of the demo a couple of slides about the demographic uh, cliff that we're all facing. This is just showing the cost of care from the time uh, Medicare started. Uh, so this is the cost per capita plus the number of people in Medicare. Another way to think about it is there were 10,000 people signed up for Medicare yesterday and 10,000 today and 10,000 tomorrow and that will be every day through 2025. We'll, by 2030, we're going to double the number of people on Medicare, so it's huge. Um, this is another slide just showing the same thing, and it's not only people on Medicare, it's those of us that are going to be in the 85 and older, hopefully. Or another way to look at this is the number of beneficiaries supporting each Medicare recipient. And when it started in 1960, there were five. By 2040, there'll be two. Um, so not only is it important to provide the health care for the elderly, we have to keep the younger people healthy so that they can keep paying taxes, so they can take care of all of us in our old age. Um, this is just a diagram of what the uh, Health Care Reform Act looked like. There was the insurance reform, the delivery system reform, payment reform that Pam talked about as far as value-based payments, bundled payments, and then um, the changes in organizational structure, accountable care organizations, and patient-centered medical home. Um, and so I'm leading our ACO efforts right here. Uh, we also had uh, four practices get certified as patient-centered medical home in this last year. So we're moving um, in both of those realms. And then if we think, you know, we don't want to argue about getting rid of the politics of the ACA, whether it's good or bad, there's probably other ways to solve this problem. This is an article that just came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's showing the estimated cost of health care in 2020 for Medicare. Uh, before the ACA started, it was at about a trillion dollars. This March, when they, the Congressional Budget Office did it again, it looks like it's down to about $800 billion. So $200 billion savings uh, in that one year just from the work that's been done so far. And it's going to be critical that we're able to do that. And $200 billion is, what, a billion seconds, I think, was something like 32 years ago. Uh, a billion dollars is basically the, the revenues that the University of Virginia Health System has. So if you think cutting $200 billion out of the health system by 2020, that's a lot of money coming out of the health system. And this is just a, a diagram of what an accountable care organization is. It's basically a group of people getting together saying, we're going to take care of a population of patients. Uh, for the Medicare Shared Savings Plan that we're in, it's Medicare patients, it could be something else. 
but it's also about improving quality as well as uh, um, as decreasing the cost of care. And that's the difference in the managed care in the early 1990s and now is it's, it's about quality and cost. Uh, it, you're not going to be successful just by cutting the um, cost of care. And this is us in the current fee-for-service world. This is where we're trying to get in the value-based payment world. Um, the shared savings plan is a little bit of a safety net to help us get across. Um, and I mean, it is about the triple aim. It is about improving care for the population. It's about improving, decreasing the cost of care for the population. But it's also about the individual patient experience. And there are individual patients at the end of every decision we're making here. So trying to figure out what the elevator speech is about accountable care, I, I've been working on this for some time before Dr. Shannon showed up, and he put this slide up, and I'm like, that's it. And so that's the reason I borrow his words every time, and it's provide the right care to the right patient in the right location the first time, every time, without error, defect, or waste. I mean, this sounds really simple. Those of us who are working in the be safe environment right now, it's far from simple. It's very complicated. Even the things that you would think is simple as far as getting an accurate medication list from a patient coming in the clinic is not simple. So this is a, uh, when I'm talking to the residents uh, and explaining the difference in accountable care, I talked to them. This was um, the, the upper left-hand corner was Albemarle County Fair a number of years ago. Uh, obviously lower right is the Magic Kingdom and one summer I had taken my family to the Magic Kingdom and I came back and I went down to North Garden and we were at the, uh, took my family, for, unfortunately I didn't pick one of the nights that had one of the bands for Ride All You Could Ride and so when you go to the, I mean the county fair is great but I mean it depends if Fred or Joe's running the Ferris wheel, how long the ride is, it depends what the weather is, how muddy it is, it depends who's cooking the funnel cakes, whether they're big or small. I mean, there, there's a lot of variability going on there. And you know what? I got home and I realized on a per hour basis, I had spent more at the Albemarle County Fair than I spent at Disney World. Now, I, you know, talking about quality, I think now I'm not taking into account travel expenses or anything like that. But, I mean, this is what, uh, this is where we're trying to get is improve quality and uh, decrease the cost of care. So um, I was watching my son play Nintendo one day, and I was like, this is very similar to what healthcare experience is like. So Mario's here at home. He goes to the doctor's office, and is told, well, there might be something a little bit wrong. We'll send you to the emergency room. Oh, there really is something wrong. Wind up in the hospital, spend a few days, and now trying to make the transition back home. And it, those of us who've seen the Nintendo games, the Mario's always falling into the holes and falling into the cracks. And so the idea here is this, um, I don't even know what this character's name is, but uh, in my mind, this represents the, our health coaches, it represents our home monitoring program, it represents our heart to home program where we send grand aides out to spend time with patients who are being discharged and to help them make a successful transition from the hospital back to home in an active life. 
And this is just in closing, Dr. Barnett uh, was the founding chair of family medicine here at UVA. And he had the, uh, he would talk about the doctor-patient relationship as being a rowboat. And the doctor and the patient are sitting side by side and each one has to pick up an oar. And the point being is, this is going to require engagement from all of us. This is not, the physicians aren't going to solve this. The nurses aren't going to solve it. The administrators aren't going to solve it. We're all going to work together, but we've got to help, help from our patients and the public to do this as well. This is, this, is, this is a problem that's important for all of us. So anyway, and I think that's my last slide. institutional response and patient care experience with our ACO. I'm going to ask Ken to come up and talk about what does this all mean for leadership? We're an academic health care center. We train the next generation, doctors, nurses, respiratory, and hospital administrators, yes. uh, future ones. And so Ken's going to pull it all together about um, education. Then we're going to have a good 20 minutes for some um, questions and, and your challenges to all of us. So Ken. Hello everyone, so good to see you here. I like seeing some orange and blue UVA colors. I, I actually have a, uh, I'm an alum of UVA very recently in 2013. I came back here to, to uh, become a nurse practitioner. I graduated in, in 2013. So um, I'm happy to uh, be one of, one of you in that way. Um, what does all of this mean for healthcare leadership, which is, uh, uh, by the way, the title of the presentation. So we have to give the, the background, the response to the ACA uh, legislation, and um, talk about, so what? What does that mean for us now? And I want to start out by saying that it's a new way of uh, thinking. <laughs> I just learned um, uh, from a very uh, um, well-known speaker on neuroscience and how our neural pathways can change, but they have to change over time. Uh, and that's why we keep doing the same old thing and try to apply the same old fixes even though they're not working. So we have to change our neural pathways and we have to change the way we think about what we do as, as leaders in healthcare whether it be uh, in the academic setting or, or whether it be in the practice setting. So that's what I'm going to raise, um, some questions here um, about, uh, first of all, a new way of thinking about patient care. It's, um, I come at this from a perspective that's not like most of my colleagues uh, in the clinical world. I was a hospital administrator first, uh, so I look at things uh, from a different lens. One day I'm at Darden uh, teaching business and the next day I'm seeing patients on the palliative uh, care service at the medical center. We have no more incentives for high cost care. We need to be taking care of uh, patients across the continuum. And I know the other speakers, my esteemed colleagues, uh, said this. But I, we see it every day that we have to train our nurses, educate our nurses and doctors and other healthcare professionals for um, caring for people, not just when they're in the hospital, but how are we going to help them get ready to leave the hospital and go to the next level of care. 
The next thing is value-based purchasing. Pam uh, referred to that. We have a different world now than when I started in healthcare in 1972. Um, our patients are smart. And if they're not, they can Google it on their phone. <laughs> they can do fact checker. They come uh, with a lot of knowledge, sometimes uh, uh, a lot of knowledge that's dangerous because they don't have it in the right context. But we're getting paid based on subjective and objective information. The subjective is the patient satisfaction. Every organization for Medicare has to um, uh, participate in a patient satisfaction survey program, and those survey results are public, they're posted, you can go out there and look at um, where hospitals stand on certain quality uh, indicators. We also have patients that are very, very savvy with social media. So I just read an article this week that was sent to me by our chief experience officer, uh, Bush Bell, in the medical center. And this was surprising to me in the Washington Post. And it was titled, How Hospitals Hope to Boost Ratings on Yelp, Health Grades, ZocDoc, and Vitals. And it highlights uh, Nancy Agee, who's the CEO of Carilion Clinic. Nancy's also an alum of our School of Nursing, which we're very proud that a nurse runs uh, um, Carilion Clinic. And um, she's hired a director of social media and reputation management at Carilion. This person works full time on all these postings that are out there about doctors and services at Carilion Clinic. So this is the information that our patients come in with. It's a very different way of looking at things. We also get paid on an objective basis. We get paid based on outcomes and how well uh, we deliver uh, care to um, improve the outcomes for that patient. Seamless transitions and coordinated care. We have new titles. We have, we have new uh, educational pathways. We have care coordinators. We have lateral integrators. We have the clinical nurse leader, which is a, an MSN, a Master of Science in Nursing program that we offer in the School of Nursing to address this very issue. And NPs and doctors of nursing practice, that's an NP or a, a clinical nurse specialist with a, a doctoral degree in, in nursing practice, are perfectly situated from the Affordable Care Act to practice at the highest level of their education and training. We have a lot of different models out there. We have nurse practitioners who uh, serve as scribes for the physicians that they work with. We have nurse practitioners who uh, focus more like advanced uh, RNs. But we really are trained to focus on uh, the total care of the patient. So we have to rethink the models and the way that we use our nurse practitioners in the acute care setting as well as in the uh, primary setting. So we're well positioned in the School of Nursing because we have a, a robust DNP program, we have an acute care nurse practitioner program, family nurse practitioner and pediatric and psychiatric nurse practitioner programs. It's a new way of thinking about management too um, because we're not just concerned about volume anymore. Uh, back in the days post DRGs, we were very focused on volume. I heard a, a, a quote yesterday, I was somewhere, I can't remember who said it now, but Dory was there, I think, that um, bigger is not better, 
versus better is better. So it's not bigger that we're looking for, and it's better. So we need to, I've heard Dory say this, we need to blow up some things and start over. Rather than try to tweak things, tweak uh, op operational pathways and structures, um, the days of tweaking just aren't working. They're not working. So we have to, to blow things up and, and start over, and that takes a lot of courage. And so we have to reward people for taking risks. And if a person take, takes a risk, they also have to be not afraid to fail. Because sometimes we learn the most from our failures. And so the way we teach uh, business at Darden a lot of times uh, is with a case study method always. But we, we look at failures as well as successes because we learn so much from, from those. Quality drives finance every time. And I, I hope uh, uh, Pam and, and uh, Dan will also uh, support me on that. Uh, if you have quality outcomes, the finances will follow. The patient satisfaction will follow. Finance cannot drive quality. We have to develop cultures, and that takes an, a different way of teaching managers and leaders about how do you change a culture. There are very specific ways that you can change a culture. It's not easy but it can be done. In studying the hospitals and health systems that have won or received the Baldridge Award, that's the highest award in the federal government presented by the president. Um, studied those applications, those are publicly available, and, and in studying how they do things and how they got that award, um, they were able to do it by changing the culture. And it took anywhere from two to five years to be able to do that and having the right people on the bus. And sometimes um, that, that means um, that we have to uh, recruit people and um, help people move along if they're not on that bus. We have to fix, we have to prevent errors and in real time. And it's pretty fascinating over at the hospital. Every morning they have what they call a situation room. And the top management, top leaders in this uh, medical center come to the Situation Room, they stand up, and they have boards all around the walls, and they talk about any near misses or anything that uh, is a quality issue, and they are on it that day. The day of waiting for the monthly reports and the quarterly reports are gone. By that time, it's too late. That's a retrospective look at problems. We, we don't want the problems to happen in the first place, so let's fix it today, right now. Do we understand our patients as, as consumers? Um, I would say that we don't completely. Uh, we don't know how our consumers make decisions. Uh, we don't know how they judge their patient experience. One uh, health system did a survey of their, of their patients, uh, of focus groups of their patients, and said, what is the most annoying thing that occurred to you during your stay in, in the hospital. And it had to do with interruptions at night. And if you've ever stayed in the hospital, four nights in the hospital being awakened every two hours for something, bright lights, noise in the hall, 
why are we taking that blood pressure at midnight and four in the morning if we don't need to do that? Um, so they made a policy and gave people eye covers so they could sleep with those eye shades, lights out, not going in the room unless you absolutely have to, unless the patient's in critical care or something. Lights are out, noise control made a huge difference. Um, so sometimes it, it's the things that are right in front of us, most obvious, that don't, that don't cost a lot. Everything that's old is new again, because population health is the model of healthy communities that we've always had, and it goes in and out of vogue in, in terms of how it's being uh, used for payment. Now, we have to teach and learn the business model for population health. And the thing that we get re requested for more often uh, from seasoned administrators are education programs in population health and the business model for population health. And then finally, organizational structures that favor the work of clinicians. Clinicians should not have to, they should have what they need when they need it. As Dr. McCarter said, uh, the right place, the right time, when they need it, what they need. And it's often not the case. Nurses spend most of their time in hunting and gathering activities. They're looking for things. <laughs> we look for pillows. We look for, we look for urinals. urinals. We look for wheelchairs. We're always looking for things. And in today's environment, you need to put on a pair of gloves every time you do anything and wash your hands every time you go in or out of a patient's room. So why aren't those things right there when you need them? A lot of things have been done here in the medical center to, to make that happen. So clinicians will deliver better outcomes when they have the resources they need to do it. We need to have a new way of thinking about uh, caring for our care providers. This is a paper that was published in Annals of Family Medicine 2014, and we're taking the triple aim that Tim uh, talked about to the quadruple aim, because we need to add a fourth aim. We need to care for the patient by caring for the provider. There's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of burnout, there's a lot of moral distress, there's a lot of uh, pathological um, uh, things that happen when a person cares more for the patient than they do for, for themselves. So those are called edge states, like the cliff, and we have a lot of people leaving nursing and medicine. The rates are way high, um, and they shouldn't be. So we need to be caring for the caregivers. So we are uh, doing things right here at the University of Virginia to, to do that. We want to prevent those cl clinician edge, edge states. And we do that in the School of Nursing and in the School of Medicine as well by uh, training for compassionate care, resiliency, uh, mindfulness, uh, ways that we can take in these um, very, very serious things that we see every day and hold them and be able to process them so that we have this, the concept of a strong back but a soft front. We take in and we take care of ourselves. We can only take care of the patient if we're in a healthy place at that juncture. We have to uh, develop and support interprofessional teams. The day of the physician being the captain of the ship are gone. We make decisions together. 
and we emphasize interprofessional rather than multi-professional. Multi-professional just means that different professions show up. Interprofessional means that they show up and they actually work across the, uh, the silos of the professions that they represent. So we get the right people together and those people then determine the plan of care for the patient and they make rounds and they learn together and then it's an integrated approach. We are changing the way we teach medical students and nursing students uh, by having them be in the classroom together. Next year we'll be offering uh, in the medical school and our nursing students uh, can enroll uh, also as an elective. Um, Dr. Short will be teaching principles of palliative care for uh, an end-of-life care for nursing students and medical students. And we're doing other things as well in our uh, interprofessional center. We have to have new compensation models because our, our physicians are no longer working in a fee-for-service world. Uh, there are different incentives out there. So if we're going to care for our caregivers, we have to also look at how do we compensate them for that care. And uh, is it based on keeping a population healthy? Is it based on making sure uh, that they get compensated for sessions to talk about? their advanced directives, uh, their uh, preferences for end-of-life care, or uh, other things of importance. New way of thinking about innovation. So uh, Peter Drucker, who's uh, the father of management in America, wrote an important paper in 1983 that was published in the Harvard Business Review on innovation as a discipline. And he said, innovation is an opportunity to take a problem and turn it into a new service or product. And we have to do that. And by um, new, uh, Dean Fontaine always reminds uh, us that new means uncopied. Um, something that no one else has done is truly innovative. We need new operational models. We need to get um, Structures, organizational structures, processes, and systems. Um, um, we need to blow them up and start over. We need new partnerships that improve care. Here are a few examples that are going on uh, right here. UVA Health System has partnered with Hospice of the Piedmont for a uh, hospice uh, beds to be offered at our transitional care hospital. That's a great innovative partnership and it fills a need in our community. Um, we have uh, nursing, medicine, and engineering that are working together on products and developing um, electronic devices that can be used at the bedside to improve care and, and communication. Uh, we have faculty who work with the School of Architecture in the Center, Center for Health Design to have nursing input into uh, des designing um, spaces for uh, patients. We have, um, we have a competition every year called the iCup, the Innovation Cup competition. It's, it's uh, uh, with all the schools at the university. And the iCup competition are teams of people who come together, nursing, medicine, engineering, physics, you name it, and they de develop a product that's innovative and that can actually be licensed and sold. And last year we had uh, four teams from the School of Nursing that partnered with Biomedical Engineering. 
physics and systems engineers to come up with some very innovative products. Nurses have always been innovators. They will do whatever it takes to uh, uh, take care of their patient, which sometimes means inventing things uh, that are temporary. Uh, we want to say, let's take those great ideas and let's turn them into innovative products that can uh, improve care for everyone. Um, I missed this slide, didn't I? So, this is here just to say, actually, I missed two slides. So we have to change how we educate. I've talked about interprofessional. I want to say a, a word about the dyad leadership model because we're getting ready to do something here that has, isn't being done anywhere else. Most physician leaders and nursing leaders, they go away to learn how to be an executive with other people in their field. There's some great programs uh, for physician executive training and, and nurse executive training. We have entered into a partnership this week. In fact, on Monday, we signed the deal with Darden School, between the Darden School and the School of Nursing, to have, to put on an executive education model where we bring dyads from health systems. So the nurse manager or nurse director and the physician director counterparts come together. Over a period of nine months, they will be on grounds for uh, nine times, staying at the Inn at Darden, and our faculty will be nursing, Darden, some from medicine, some from McIntyre, some from other uh, areas of expertise, even nationally. So this is a new in innovative uh, model, and uh, we hope it will um, have great success. We already have 28 uh, people signed up for the first cohort group that will start next January. The way we teach has changed completely. It's no longer the sage on the stage. It's project-based learning. Some people call it the flipped classroom. Um, we, we spend 20 minutes or so an hour with the lecture, and the rest of it is case studies, project-based learning, learning from each other. We've even redesigned our classrooms so that students sit around a round table and they actually learn from each other from real life problems and um, uh, issues. Our curriculum is changing. We're focusing on courses and in innovation and entrepreneurship, quality, safety, population health, and, and, and palliative care. We even have uh, um, a proposal for a new minor, an undergraduate minor called entrepreneurship that anyone can, can take in any of the schools. So the last slide is uh, a really positive note. Uh, UVA is leading the way here uh, in how we're responding to the challenges uh, in a post-ACA world. Uh, quality and safety, magnet designation, the hospital has received that. That's for uh, exemplary nursing uh, care. Um, the uh, School of Nursing partners with the Medical Center for, for many things, and one of those is what we call the Moral Distress cons uh, Consult Service. If a nurse um, feels like, uh, or, or anyone, feels like they are required to do something that they don't feel like morally in their, in their uh, value system is something that they feel comfortable carrying out, they can contact um, someone on the Moral Distress Consult Service. So the magnet surveyors actually listed that, this out as an exemplar practice that we do here at UVA. 
Um, we have in the School of Nursing the Compassionate Care Initiative, which includes resiliency training for all nursing students and clinicians, our interprofessional uh, research and education. Um, we're looking into more programs, specialty programs, and palliative and end-of-life uh, uh, education programs. And we also have this dual strategy model. And Pam talked about it, and Dr. McCarter did as well, in that we have to be this tertiary, quaternary referral center. And at the same time, we have to take care of the population health of our community. So it's sort of a dual, and, and, and sometimes it's competing. But we have to be able to live side by side and hold these two things uh, together and respond. And the last slide is um, a celebratory slide. Um, we can't lead the way without partnerships. And this is all part of the University of Virginia's cornerstone plan for schools to be able to work together. Um, and we, this is the actual formal uh, signing of the MOU partnership between Darden and the School of Nursing just this Monday. So um, thank you for your uh, attention and support. about 10 to 15 minutes for some questions and I'm sure you are stimulated to think of some good challenges um, because we only have that amount of time I would love you to keep your uh, questions short but would you mind standing up and uh, telling us your name and maybe since you're a Wahoo you're gonna have to say what year and what school so yes I already met this gentleman he's a, he's a neurologist the idea of the ICUP competition. I don't know if you could uh, share with us. I'm, I'm from Ben David Rose from Tampa, Florida. Just if you could share with us a little bit about how that works, interdisciplinary, um, what kind of inventions you all came up with. And then my second point is I had a, had a question. I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, as uh, healthcare practitioners, we don't conflate uh, two separate issues here, uh, which is kind of like the overall theme of what you all were talking about today, which was, um, you know, cost savings and value and spending. I think those are two separate issues. In other words, spending money on healthcare dollars for diagnosis and treatment. And then, of course, um, trying to, you know, say that we're 37th or whatever we are in terms of actually um, uh, our, our ranking and in terms of how our, our patients do. I think those are two separate, totally separate issues. Just because we spend a lot of money on healthcare dollars doesn't mean that the folks we spend it on don't do very well. I think the bottom of the ladder is where we need to focus. The huge bottom of the pyramid, hypertension, 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 primary care stuff. And if we could control that, you know, 47% of all hypertensives in this country are at goal. That means 53% are not, and that causes heart attacks and strrokes and all those sorts of problems. I think if we get that under control, not worry about the cost of actually, you know, spending on diagnostic tests, MRIs, expensive labs, genetic stuff. That whole stuff is cool. I'd rather be in society that has that than one that doesn't. And I just want to make sure we're not conflating the two topics and want to, and if you all can comment on that as well. Thanks. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Ken, Dan, do you want to comment on that too? You want to I can comment on that. you've I... got to talk in the microphone, if you don't mind. I can comment on the ICAP uh, competition. A call goes out in the fall. I think it's supported by some private uh, foundation 
um, dollars, and because the rewards are, are pretty good, first place team gets twenty thousand dollars, and that's a lot of money for undergraduate students. <laughs> um, and the, the, the instructions go out, and um, we're asked to, to put together uh, teams at each school. We had four teams last year. One of the team, uh, one of the teams looked at uh, any way innovative and not expensive ways to cover central line um, insertions, and they used a, um, they used some kind of that you know that press and seal um, that we use to cover saran wrap that we cover bowls with. <laughs> they came up with this great idea to um, ha have it uh, have something like that because it actually works to cover a, um, um, a wound. Um, other ideas had to do with, let's put the, the uh, alarms, instead of hearing all the alarms that go off on the units, let's send that alarm to the nurse's eye watch. So when the alarm goes off, the nurse knows, this is my patient, I better go do something. And you don't have to hear all this noise pollution um, in, the, in the setting. Uh, there are two levels of competition, and there's an application, judges at both levels. Thank you, Ken. That's great. Um, Dan, do you want to speak about hypertension? This is a neurologist trying to prevent strokes in the well, nation. Sounds like you do talk about Yeah, I, and, and I think you, in a lot of ways you're absolutely right. There is a tremendous amount of waste in our system. I mean, one of the things we do when we do our Be Safe training is we go out and actually have to observe uh, what's going on. And when it, without fail, when you take a group of healthcare providers out, you do observation and you come back and you realize about 60% of what we're doing is not adding value to the patient at the bedside. And that's the same whether you're in the inpatient environment or the ambulatory environment. So part of it's figuring out how to get rid of the things that aren't adding value. It's not necessarily restricting services to the patient. It's, it's doing that. And I would go even one step further. It's, yeah, managing hypertension is one thing, but how do we get into the schools and work with the kids to learn how to take care of themselves so they never develop hypertension? Um, it's, we over-medicalize our societal problems here, and I'm not sure that healthcare is the answer to all of those. And so it's really going to be important for us all to work together on how to do that. No more funnel cakes. <laughs> Sorry, you're right. <laughs> uh, hello, I'm Richard Bryant, class of 75, and it, I would be remiss without pointing out that this used to be the drama department in this room, and so we performed right where they were, and our lighting was much better. Uh, uh, creative placemaking work, that's the field I'm in. We help cities and towns and neighborhoods build places creatively from a performing arts background here at UVA. 40 years. And we discovered we can't do it over the last 10 years unless we intersect healthcare. And so we have university-assisted community school program. We're building clinics inside community schools. And it's all with arts people. It's a whole consortium of individuals who are trying to rebuild their communities. Fast forward to a few years ago, Wells Fargo Regional Insurance asked us to write their newsletters for their 50,000 consumers because they wanted people to write about health care who weren't from health care so that we could do it in a manner that it was sort of plainly spoken. And their key issue, uh, this big insurance company's key issue for small business insurance was helping consumers be better consumers, health care consumers. And their key concern is that nobody knows what anything costs. 
Nobody. The doctors don't know. The nurses don't know. Nobody knows. And the whole industry has obfuscated price. I was wondering if the CEO could you speak to that point? And is it important? Are they on the right track trying to get consumers to be educated about what things cost? Or in this new model, is that a step that will just be skipped because of what's going on? They think prices will go down when everybody knows what they are. That's a great question, and um, congratulations on all that theater work. Pam, go ahead. No, you're absolutely right. Price is a huge issue, especially as more employers are moving to those high deductible plans where the patient's out-of-pocket expense is extraordinary. In fact, some of the products in the exchange, the deductible's $5,000, and people are paying a premium, and they're wondering, what am I buying? All right, so people now care about what's their first $5,000 out-of-pocket, what do they get for it? Um, price is confusing in this marketplace because, generally speaking, the employers historically have paid um, the premium and patients have not been, had any participation in the cost or sharing in the cost and that's shifting. I think what you're seeing is more and more apps. Um, I was on a panel recently with a woman, I can't remember the name of her app, but you can um, type in um, what you're having done and based on where you're located and it'll give the price um, for all the hospitals in your in that area, you know, a 50 mile radius for an MRI, and it ranged from like a hundred percent difference, right? And but the the challenge is what drives price, and it's really complicated. So there's a difference between what something costs versus what I'm charging you, versus what kind of discount does your insurance company get, and it matters what insurance type you. And so I do think there is going to be this push to price transparency and price clarity. I think Medicare is trying, You'll, if you go to, it may not be on the hospital compare website, but there are there is a Medicare website that will tell you how much some basic services cost in that region. And there are regional differences, right? In New York, your MRI is very different than what it costs in Texas. That's a great question. We're gonna have one more question because I know Reunion schedule keeps you all very busy. Um, go ahead. I think, I think your hand was up first. Was that right? Or was something else? Sorry. Well, the panel can stay for a few minutes after if you want to come up. Well, I just, um, I definitely want to second what you said about like the, the answer to how much is this going to cost is so multifactorial that there is no answer. Because, like, my personal experience as a patient, um, I had gestational diabetes. I started with one um, um, glucose monitor meter and all the supplies that came with it. Then our plan changed, our insurance plan. All of a sudden, my supplies aren't covered. I have to get a new meter, new lancets, new uh, testing strips. Guess what? The new system costs twice as much. That's a 100% increase. Why? I don't know. I only had to do this for two months, and I was thinking, what about patients that have to do this for years? So, I mean, there is no answer to why things cost the way they cost. Um, but I think that's a, transparency is going to be key. Um, my other comment was there's a lot of uh, focus right now, and I, I, I love the fact that palliative care keeps coming up in every other slide in this presentation. I think that's really amazing, um, and the focus on that. But I also kind of wanted, as an OBGYN, to bring that back to kind of the beginning of the life process and maternity care. And is there any... Um, push to kind of 
increase the in-home care uh, monitoring of newborns and mothers, try to bridge the pediatric and obstetric like divide um, to really tr uh, truly reduce cost and improve quality for the mother-infant dyad um, that I think is so key. That's a good question. Um, you know, Ken and I are not going to be able to speak to that maternal care. <laughs> so, uh, anybody else there, or Dan, anything about new, new ideas with mother-baby? I, I mean, the only thing that really comes to mind, I, I know our OBGYN group here does go out to a number of the local health departments providing care in places where they wouldn't otherwise have access to the prenatal care. Um, I know that we have um, a group of pediatricians who are doing care at home, and very often that will help some of the kids that have ICU needs and things like that, that they can actually be managed at home rather than having to be managed in the hospital, and that's been a very popular service. So those are the two things that I, I'm, and the ACO, I'm spending most of my time focusing on the people over age 65, but those are two of the things that I'm aware of that are going on at, in the prenatal care, and I'm sure there's a lot more that I'm just not aware of. There is uh, also a wonderful telemedicine program that has started up, um, particularly for underserved patients who live far away, so for, um, I think the main clinic is in Southwest um, Virginia, um, where high-risk OB mothers um, are getting telemedicine consults with our maternal and fetal medicine group, which is the high-risk group. And they literally do an e-visit together with the provider, usually a nurse on their side, and talk through so that they don't have to travel uh, to UVA to get this high-end maternal fetal medicine consult. Um, in general, our um, the latest statistic is our telemedicine programs have saved 15 million miles of travel um, for patients who more narrowly have had to come right. here. And I think it is a model for other states, what we're Absolutely. doing here in Virginia. Well, I want to thank you for your attention. Let's um, thank our panel.